Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Bettino, and on today's episode, we have Rochelle Kopp. She is the founder and managing principal at Japan Intercultural Consulting, which helps organizations perform better through cross cultural training, executive and team building coaching, HR consulting, and more. She also serves as an independent board director at MSNAD Insurance Group and Lightworks Corporation. She is also a renowned expert on Japanese business culture and HR and management. I'm really glad to get her on the podcast to do a series on Japanese business culture and manners, and in the future, also talk about leadership and running an effective organization. It's really good to have you on the podcast, Rochelle. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Good to collaborate with you again, as we were both resident mentors for the 500 Global Aichi program earlier in 2023. Yeah, that was really fun. So I did see your presentations. Also, I've known about you for about eight years. I've attended your seminars in person, and you are one of the people to go to for Japanese business culture and HR and management. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say. I basically devoted my career to looking at how Japanese and people from other countries can work together more effectively in business. And, you know, and that was based on my own experience working for a Japanese company that was rapidly globalizing and seeing how the Japanese and people from other countries had a lot of difficulty understanding each other and figuring out how to effectively collaborate. And I thought if I can help people with this, I could make a useful contribution in the world. That was really my motivation. And I'll say, if you haven't heard of Rochelle Kopp, either you've probably not looked into the subject of Japanese culture. It's, I think you are unavoidable for anyone uh, looking to improve <laughs> and manage Japanese people. I'm not making, saying this point to like insult the listeners. It's This is just how well-known uh, Ro Rochelle is on the topic. And so, yeah, I think one of the interesting things that we can dive into first is uh, decision making in Japan. But how are decisions made in a Japanese business? You know, compared to in a lot of countries outside of Japan where there is one person who makes decision on their own, in Japan, decisions kind of emerge through a group consensus. And it's often difficult to say exactly who made the decision. It's more a matter of the opposing voices become less and less and everyone seems to be okay with it. And then we kind of have this feeling that we're all going to be good with this idea. And then someone kind of formalizes it. It's a uh, process of getting momentum rather than a single point in time. Gotcha. And I think one of the terms they use is called nemawashi, which uh, I mean, yes. I understand the concept, but just for the listeners, could you explain what nemawashi is? Certainly. So nemawashi is originally a term from the world of gardening. And nem means roots and mawashi means go around. And Japanese gardeners, as you know, are very talented. And they discovered that if you take a tree and you dig it up and you immediately transplant it, that often the tree will go into shock and will die. And so that's not a recommended way to do things. And so they came up with this technique called nemawashi, where they go around the roots of the tree, give each part of the root system individual attention, you unclip it, get it ready, you know, and do it over the course of a few days so that the tree can make a good transition. 
And they found that if they do this, then the tree is more likely to thrive. So this term started to be used in the world of business to refer to people who carefully laid the groundwork and got support for their ideas so that they would be supported rather than have the idea be just outright rejected. That is an excellent explanation of that. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit in the West, oftentimes it's kind of top down. Are there any other differences in the way maybe decisions are made in the West versus Japan? In Japanese culture, there's a lot of emphasis on getting approvals for things. You often have to go up to a higher level in a Japanese organization to get approvals for things that in a lot of Western organizations would be decided at a lower level. So I do a lot of work with Japanese organizations that have subsidiaries in the U.S. And a lot of times when I talk to the top people in those organizations, they often tell me, you know, I spend so much of my time just on paperwork approving things. And when I look into it, you know, they're approving expenditures that are like $100 or something like that. <laughs> and why is oh this God. going up to this oh high level of person? And there's just kind of this assumption that upper level people have to approve things. And I tell them, you know, in the United States, a manager would have the ability to just approve anything that's within $10,000 or something like that. There's this thing in Japanese organizations of pushing things to higher levels. I need to do a little bit more research on this, but I do have the sense that in Japan, some of it is driven by the corporate law and what things are required to be decided by certain levels of management or certain things have to go to the board. So I know as a board member, particularly for the smaller company I'm on, that sometimes we're approving like policy changes that you really didn't need my opinion on this, you know, or I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm really adding much on this, you know, there's some, you know, we're changing such and such like really small policy, but it's, you have to have that upper level of, of approval. So I think the idea of approving something is very big in Japanese culture. Gotcha. And I've had personal experience as a board member on my own company and sometimes with some of the agenda items. So I thought like, this sounds like more like a gamble. Like, we could have got it. Exactly. Maybe too- yeah. Like this should like the person who knows about this should make the decision and like no one else has to be bothered with it. Yeah. That would be my reaction to in a lot of these cases. But mm-hmm. I really do think that they're, and again, I'm not an attorney and I have to look into this more, but I think some of it is actually legally driven. Yeah, I think that could possibly be a good topic in the future, maybe how Japanese corporate law affects decision-making and how businesses are run in Japan. I think that would be really informative. I would listen to a podcast on that topic, yes. Cool. So I think now that we've kind of talked about uh, how decisions are made in Japan and in the West, so I think the question on everyone's mind is, how do you really find the middle ground when you have both Japanese and let's say Westerners in an organization? I think the question is, what do you mean by middle ground? And we always wanna be really careful of kind of expecting that Japanese are somehow going to become more like us or do things that are completely differently. And, And if you have a Japanese organization and this is how they make decisions, it's actually very difficult to change that. And rather than fighting against it, you might do better to work with it. 
I wouldn't always say, well, well, how do we change things? But, you know, how do we work with them would make sense, right? You, on the other hand, for example, if you are a foreign organization that has an operation in Japan, then, you know, it's not a originally Japanese organization. It's more of a hybrid organization. And that's a situation where you can look at things at, like delegating more to managers, and telling managers you can decide things within you know this amount of money etc and i think there's a lot of japanese who would really welcome that so i think you just have to think about what's the context is it a context where you are able to change the rules or where it's an existing organization that doesn't have an interest in changing and then you just have to figure out how to work with it i've been really surprised maybe because i come from an hr background originally but I'm surprised at how few organizations and companies have what I mean by a foreign companies in Japan, whereas part of the onboarding process, I'm surprised that they don't give a Japanese staff kind of like a chart that says, typically in a Japanese organization, this is how things are done, but this is how we would like things done. I'm surprised how often that's not done. In Japan, yeah, I've never seen anything quite like that done. I've never seen it explicit. And in fact, one problem that I've seen is in a lot of foreign organizations in Japan, you know, they hire their management staff, their local managers, and they hire people who originally worked for Japanese companies. <laughs> and so then those people bring their management style from their old company. And I've seen a lot of foreign firms where, you know, there's never been an explicit communication about here's how we want people to manage in our environment, or here's the management style we want you to use, or here's what we do here. And so they don't have anything like that. And so the managers come over from the old fashioned Japanese company and they continue to manage in the same old fashioned <laughs> Japanese company way within the foreign firm. And then I've seen situations where there are younger Japanese who say, hey, I joined this foreign company because I wanted something different than the traditional Japanese firm style. And now I'm working for this manager and he's managing just like we're in a traditional Japanese firm. What was the point of me even coming here? You know, so you have the you know, increased expectations that your younger Japanese staff will have. So I feel like Japanese operations of foreign firms, you need to really think a lot about, well, what is the culture that we want? Because if you don't, intentionally create a culture and train managers into the way that you want them to be managing, they're just going to fall back onto what they did before. And that might not be what you're wanting. We have all this high expectations of you coming in, running the ground, coming in fast, communicating us with headquarters, but we don't provide you any guidance on how to actually do that. So sorry, I just find that funny. But. Yeah, no, I think I think that's true. No, I think there's a lot of unstated expectations that the parent company has. And then they get annoyed when people don't meet those expectations. Well, if you didn't make them clear, I think part of the reason is, is that I think a lot of those expectations that the parent company has, they just think, well, this is natural and this is how everyone does, does things. And they don't realize that their Japanese team members are coming from a completely different environment that has such different norms. I think like these things are like in a corporate with how much money they have, they, they would have figured it out. But I was so surprised. Like I couldn't believe it. <laughs> 
but uh, sorry, it's do you have Getting any? Getting close to home. <laughs> or it's more like I would just see these organizations reach for help. And I'm like, but you guys have like a billion dollars. Like, like we figure this out, and like you know, maybe like hundred times smaller. So it's it's just funny. Right. Yeah. So I think、uh, we do have some country managers、uh, listening to this, who they have predominantly Japanese staff. But do you have any tips for maybe a Western manager or foreign manager trying to train Japanese staff to make a decision? So I think you gave one example of empowering them to make more decisions. Yeah, I think、uh, that's really important. I think that people need to know that it's okay. That you can decide this on your own. That you don't have to check with me on something like this. You know, I think they need to be given that explicit. You know, okay, or you know, sort of a what? What is your realm where you can decide on your own? And you don't have to bother me. And it just has to be really clear. Cool. And、uh, do you have any other tips for、uh, foreign managers? It's very important to realize that Japanese will not always speak up about things that are on their mind. So a lot of times, as a consultant, I'm working with a client, and I talk to the Japanese team members, and they share a lot of concerns. And then I will then share those with the non-Japanese management, and they're like, "Why didn't I hear about any of this from them? Why can't they just tell me this?" And in Japanese culture, it is not easy. To share anything negative, particularly with someone more senior like your boss, and so that means that negative information or concerns don't bubble up, and that's different. For example, I'm from the United States. In the United States, if people are unhappy, they tell you about it, and that doesn't happen in Japan. If people are unhappy, they don't say anything. They might behave passively, aggressively. Or they might just kind of tune out and be disengaged. That's sort of like disengaged on the job. What what is it? A quiet quitting? They call it, right?、Um, <laughs> or they could actually just quit and just be gone. And you're like, wait, wait, wait! I, we we really liked you. Why are you leaving? And and then they, they had all these concerns you never heard about. So I feel like you know if you're used to from U.S. and perhaps other countries where people tell you what's on their minds. You have to really get recalibrated in the Japanese environment. That that doesn't happen naturally or automatically. And if you really want to get feedback from people, you have to put a lot of time and effort into creating that relationship and rapport where they feel comfortable sharing those things. One of the common challenges I see with my consulting clients is not having any staff internally who can drive marketing strategy and execution to the next level. This really limits the growth trajectory of a company. Especially for a leader like you that wants to go from 30 million to 500 million yen a year and does not have the time to spend years learning through trial and error. To solve this problem, I'm launching a marketing agency that can help companies like yours to increase leads and closing rates through SEO, Google Maps, content marketing, and websites that convert. Head over to scalingyourcompany.com and book a free consultation. Let's talk about what your business needs are, where your current strategy is letting you down, and how we can help you see real results with the methods I've successfully implemented at multiple companies myself. Now back to the episode. Could you talk more about? Yes, I think one is the rapport.、Uh, could you give <coughs> any other、uh, kind of tips on getting them to share more information with you, or maybe an、uh, example where you've helped someone or coached someone Japanese? 
So I think the thing that you need to do is that you need to develop relationships with people and you need to create specific points in time where they feel safe sharing with you. And usually for Japanese, that is outside the context of the workplace. So that could be having lunch together. It could be going and grabbing a cup of coffee. It could be having a drink or dinner after work. That typically for Japanese, those situations are ones where they will relax and they feel that they have permission to say what's on their minds more than they would when you were in the office. And so that means, you know, creating those opportunities. I tend to like lunch as an opportunity because particular for employees who have children that, you know, they don't always want to do evening drinkings. You know, um, Japanese are famous for, well, let's go out for dinner. But mm -hmm. recently, that's not as popular with people, particularly after the pandemic. They realized, hey, I kind of like being at home and it's kind of nice eating dinner with my family. And, and, and so there's dropping popularity in, in evening business you know, interactions. So I recommend to people grab lunch. Take your Japanese colleague or your team member out to lunch. And, you know, it's a treat and it's, it gets away from the office and you have more chance to kind of talk and share. And I can give a personal example. There's been my experience with my co-founder and CEO of OneCoin English, and he's a pretty successful and actually he's kind of well-known entrepreneur, Japanese entrepreneur in Japan. But mm -hmm. I noticed that he would take the founding team and like uh, and other board members, he would go out to lunch with us at least once a month. He never explicitly said, like, I'm going to take you out. But I've noticed that like it he took happened. everyone out. Yeah, it just happened. And he would take out the managers of the department he was directly managing, usually once a month. And if there's kind of like issues internally, he would probably do twice a month. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and I, that's is, a good idea. And this is for lunch, you said, or dinner? Uh, lunch. Lunch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like once a quarter, he might take out the board members for dinner. Mm -hmm. To have like a deeper, you know, like a three hour chat as opposed to like, you know, a quick one hour chat. And this is someone who was managing probably three multi-million dollar companies. Uh -huh. And he was only with the company we co-founded together twice a week. Ah. So even though he was only twice a week, that's how frequently he did he it. He was doing it. That's a great example. I can give a maybe even more extreme example of this. And of course, not all companies do this. But uh, do you know Yona Yona Ale? Yes, I love their beer too. Yes, a really great beer. And they are a fascinating business success story. I heard the founder speak a couple of years ago. And he's written books and he's, he's well known. And their company kind of struggled early on and was maybe on the brink of failure when he went to some sort of seminar or something that kind of inspired him. And he decided that he was going to put more effort into team building with his team members. And one of the things that he does for team building is they get together all the people in the office who work together. And during the coronavirus, they did it online where putting two people in Zooms and they would shuffle randomly who you were with. But they have it's like half hour where they just have small talk. And so they talk about, hey, what's going on in your life? And what'd you do last night? Did you see a good movie? Tell me about your kid's soccer game. They just talk about 
whatever is going on for them personally. And this is not five minutes. This is literally a half hour every day. Everyone in the office, they just get together, and I'm, I'm guessing they probably are, you know, sipping their coffee while they're doing it. <laughs> but they have every morning before they start work, they have a half hour where they just interact with each other. And so he talks about this as, well, you all companies should do this, and when the great power of small talk like this, and it's, it's one of his things. And you know, they've been so incredibly successful; it's hard to argue with success. But that's he preaches this as, a, as a technique. Gotcha. But yeah, it sounds interesting to me because it's not just coworkers. It's like actually creating nakama. Yes. Yes, uh, exactly. Nakama, which is your, it's an in-group. And that is so important in Japanese culture that Japan is a group-oriented culture. So having that, you know, I guess the French would call it esprit de corps or <laughs> that group solidarity or team spirit is it's important anywhere, but it's particularly important in, in group-oriented cultures. So where you have those activities that can kind of strengthen your feeling of being a group, it really makes a big difference. Cool. No, thank you for sh sharing and elaborating that. Before you touched a bit, you know, with decision-making that it's hard for a Japanese staff to bring up things to people in power. And I think this kind of related yeah, I'd like you to talk a little bit more, maybe like why Japanese workers are so risk adverse. This is one of the things I think, again, that is difficult for people from other cultures, particularly, you know, my culture of the United States. And I've spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, which is on the extreme end of like, we don't worry about risk, just do it, just try it, right? And Japan culture does not emphasize that. And really, everything that people learn from the time they're children is be careful, watch out, don't mess up. All the eyes of the world are upon you. And so people become deathly afraid of making a mistake that it's going to lead to huge negative consequences for them or the company. And so doing anything that's different from what's expected, like complaining, <laughs> can be viewed negatively. And so people tend to avoid it. I think also, you know, it's changing in Japan, but traditionally people have had one chance to succeed in their career. They join a company and there's not a lot of chance to move around to a different company. And they are afraid that like, hey, if, if I do something and the boss doesn't like me, I'll never get promoted again. And so they're very hesitant to do anything outside the norm that might attract criticism. Like, let's say, for example, there was a person, so they're very likely to be probably the person who had not the most wins or biggest wins, but probably who made the least amount of mistakes or public Exactly. Mistakes. Yeah. Because, you know, again, I think the incentives are different. So if you look at, again, I'll just use U.S. as a reference point. U.S. organization, you do something great, you're promoted, you get the big bonus, you know, you're really, you, you move up quickly. You make a mistake, well, you go someplace else and you try again. Or you're forgiven and like, oh, well, that was a good try and we learned from it, you know, and it's maybe not as big a deal. In Japan, even if you like create the giant hit or you do this great thing, you're not going to move up more quickly than other people your age or similar level of tenure 
or maybe a little bit more quickly, but not that much. It's not going to be like leaps and bounds. And your compensation is not as tied to performance as it would be in other places. So you might get a little bit more money, but not that much. So there's the upside is not that big. However, if you do something and you screw up, that could just, you know, give you a black mark against your name forever and you're not going to be going forward. And so then, you know, that's a huge downside. So the upside versus downside is reversed. U.S. has huge upside, little downside. Japan, not that much upside, huge downside. Yeah, I think this is something that probably startups, this is a good point for them to know in dealing with Japanese corporations and really thinking about how can they de-risk the situation Uh for the corporate person they're working with. Uh, Yeah, because I think the main thing the Japanese will always think about is, how could this go wrong? How could this blow up in my face and make me look (laughs) bad? I feel like that's like the first thing that a lot of Japanese think about when thinking about anything. I have my own little kind of personal leadership laboratory I've been doing recently that outside of work, I've been working with a group of Japanese activists to try and save this park, Jingu Gaian, from a redevelopment. And it's been very interesting for me to be in this you know, I'm the only non-Japanese and, and none of them speak English. And, none, you know, one of them lived in Italy for a while. And so she's kind of sometimes a bridge for me because she understands a little bit better about foreign cultures. But the rest of everyone else, you know, they've been you know more focused on domestic things in, in, within Japan. And there's a couple members of the group that I'm always like, well, let's do this and we'll try this and it will be fine. I'm very like American. Let's <laughs> let's go do this demonstration here and do this or whatever. And like, they're <laughs> always like, there's always a couple people who are like, but I'm worried. <laughs> Their first instinct is to worry. And they're really good at thinking about all the things that could go wrong. And so in a way, that's kind of a talent. In my case, I'm just like, I'm not worried. Don't worry. I'll take care of it and it'll be fine. Um, So, but on the other hand, I kind of irritate them too. So it's a balance you have to have. And like in your personal experience, how can, let's say, and I'll go at two angles. Let's say I'm a Japanese manager with Japanese staff because we do have a lot of Japanese listeners. Uh And the other case would be maybe a foreign manager with Japanese staff, but how could they help reduce risk aversion in their staff? Well, I think it's really, it would be the same whether you're foreign or Japanese that I think that, first of all, you need to tell Japanese staff, I realize this might not go perfectly the first time. Even if it doesn't go perfectly, I'm not going to blame you. You are not going to get in trouble. I feel like for Japanese to hear that explicitly is really important. It really like makes feel people feel better. You know, you're not going to be held responsible if it's not perfect the first time. And we're trying something we don't know how it's going to go. Let's you know, this is an experiment. So I feel like that's really the key thing. And then when things do go wrong, to be really walking the talk and don't like get angry, don't blame people and instead have the attitude of, okay, this didn't go how we wanted it to. What can we learn from this? And how can we make sure that things go better the next time? And so that type of attitude will make people feel more comfortable trying something new. 
I need to test this out more, but one thing I'm starting to do with some of my Japanese clients is getting them to do the PDCA, like plan, do, check, act cycle, where error is already built into the planning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you know it's not going to be perfect the first time and you anticipate that. I like that. You know, the, the thing about PDCA is it's really not that different from Lean Startup or Agile. It's really the kind of the same thing. The only thing that's different is the Japanese style is to have the much bigger P. The planning part <laughs> is huge and elaborate. And then a lot of times for Agile and Lean Startup, that we don't spend so much time on the P because we learn from doing it. But other than that, you know, theoretically, it's the same kind of idea. So I feel like that could be really helpful. Also, I would say, so I think that was, was kind of more of the interpersonal. Uh, do you have any other tips for maybe from an organization point of view to reduce risk aversion? Well, I think it does go down to how promotions are decided. If you have an old-fashioned Japanese business culture of someone made one mistake and they never get promoted again, you know, people will figure that out and it's a damper. So I think being willing to forgive people for having things not go perfectly and reward things that people for trying something different, I think can be helpful. So you know, it does go down to your performance evaluation practices too. I mean, not today's interview, but I did will definitely want to interview about change management. For today, we probably won't get into all our questions, but uh, the next topic I want to get into is uh, persuasion uh -huh. in Japan versus the West. First, we'll start off with maybe how does persuasion work in the West? And it's usually by a combination of presenting facts and logical argument. And also in the West, a lot of persuasion is, is whoever is louder and more passionate. So there's that aspect too. <laughs> the, how about Japan? I feel like Japan, you know, the logic and facts is going to be important. The loud and passionate doesn't really get you very much. But what gets you a lot in Japan is persistence. The Japanese culture really values people who consistently kind of be, I like to call it beat the same drum. And so you have a message and you don't get told no and give up, but you keep delivering that message and you find different ways to do it. And so that's why I always recommend people is to keep putting this idea forward in as many ways as you can. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back and let me help you and your company scale. Find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. And would you be able to give some examples, maybe how you helped an organization uh, being persistent? You know, I've had a lot of clients who have something that they want to be having the company do. And the company says no. And they bring it up whenever they can. You and I, I have examples that people have told me of they've been able to convince a Japanese company to do something, but it's taken a long time because they just wouldn't give up talking about it. 
And so <laughs> I talked recently with someone in a Japanese company and he wanted them to approve a certain learning program for them to use. I forget if it was LinkedIn Learning or something like that, that was, there was a reason why it was going to be useful for their particular work. And it was sort of a new idea to the Japanese company. And it took a while to kind of talk about it. But after six months, they were able to get approval. So they didn't give up about it. I actually have one example of a Japanese guy. A guy I met in a Japanese company. This is a Japanese individual. And he had the idea that digital marketing was going to be important. And he <laughs> want, his particular company has it's something that's used in construction. And traditionally, there would be like a big fat like parts manual that looks like an American old phone book um, <laughs> of all these different things. And he had the vision that could we put this on the computer so that someone could access it on their iPad at the construction site and then like order right there. Like, and, and wouldn't have to lug this huge book, book around or wouldn't have to go back to the office. And if they had all the information right there on a website at the job site that they could identify these things and, you know, it'd be a frictionless experience and people would be more likely to use our product. What's his, what's his vision? It took him five years to convince his company to do it. And he just would not give up. And people told him he was stupid and crazy. And it was just, it was not something that his very traditional Japanese company had ever considered doing. They finally did it. And it was a huge hit. Of course, everyone loved it. It was so convenient. And so this guy, five years, he would not give up. I mean, you have to give that guy a medal, right? Yeah, I don't know if the company gave him a medal. As, as I said, probably not. But... He was very proud of himself, and I was quite impressed when I heard his story. Yeah, it was very impressive. And probably more, what more likely happened is, like, yeah, like, we agree. <laughs> it's like after five years later, it's like, yeah, that was a good idea. And like, <laughs> right. Like, we were a part of the decision. <laughs> right. And I think the thing that's different in Japanese culture is, you know, I don't think he was really so concerned with personal glory or getting a big bonus or anything like that. He was just like... If I think about the long term of this company that I belong to and I've committed to like my lifetime employment with, I want them to do well. And this is what I think they need to do to do well. I mean, that was really his approach. I think that's a great example of one person at a time. Like he just had to convince one person at a time. And right. eventually everyone was on board. I think one other thing uh, yeah, regarding decisions, I've heard that once they, it takes a long, in Japanese corporate, you know, it does take a long time for a decision to be made. But once it is made, Japanese companies, not always, but typically move pretty fast. That is true. Because what happens is in the process of making decision, all the related people, all the impacted people, or all the people who have to do something to support it, learn about what needs to be done. They get up to speed. So then they have a chance to already start kind of getting prepared. So then once the green light happens, they're able to very quickly move forward. In US organizations, for example, we leave a lot of that until after the decision gets made. And that becomes part of the implementation process. But in Japan, they take care of it during the decision making. Pretty much built the roads already. Yeah. 
And once it's, uh, let's say, once it's finalized, you just the pavement has been built, so you just have to just drive, and you know where to go exactly. already. Exactly, you know exactly where to go. You already have been given a map. And would you say this would apply to, like, even at the ground level and uh, maybe even at, like, the section level, they've already been involved? Those are the people definitely who would be involved, yes. And there's a word for it in Japanese, chosei, which is coordination. There's a lot of chosei that happens, <laughs> getting everyone aligned. It's like another version of Nemawashi. You meet with people, you get on the same page, you make sure there's not some issue that's going to be a problem for them that you haven't anticipated. You know, you share a lot of information. It's a lot of discussion and talking. Thank you. And did you have another example for persuasion? Or do, did you cover Oh, I was going to give you the other persuasion example. Yes. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was going to talk about is sometimes what Japanese need to view something as persuasive information is different than people in other countries. And particularly for Japanese, they like to have information be in context and they like to understand what the overall trends are. So I had one client that came to me that they had been trying, they were an American manager at a Japanese company subsidiary in the U.S. And they needed to convince their Japanese parent company to start offering a new product line in the U.S. And basically, this guy had been hired to kind of work on that idea. And so he really needed to get the Japanese parent company on board. The parent company had already been pitched this idea a couple times and they had rejected it. And so I asked to see like the pitch that had been done before, you know, at least the slides. And evidently, you know, based on, you know, the slides, they they kind of took the approach of there's this great market but a market opportunity now and and we need to do this kind of thing. <laughs> and there wasn't any like historical context like well where did this market trend come from has this market trend been building or what how did we get to what where we are right now in time because their approach was like here's now and here's what we need to do in the future i'm like well what about up until now what's behind this why why is this part of significant trends etc and so i recommended go back and like set the scene Tell the story. How did we end up here? And why is this a part of like ongoing major trends and not just like this year's flash in the pan? And so when they put more of that substantial background, then they were able to get approved. Interesting. We're definitely probably going to have to do a third episode. And uh, <laughs> our next recording will focus more on Japanese business manners. But yes, yeah, so I want to finish off. Do you have anything else to share? And also, uh, if you have any asks for the audience. I guess really the key thing is, is again, this idea of investment over time, investing in your relationships with your Japanese team members, colleagues, key decision makers, whoever it is, the more time you spend building the relationships, the more you'll reap the benefits of, the more you'll be able to easily persuade people about things and get decisions made by building consensus. It just makes it a lot easier. And I would also say an investment in being persistent. And if something's really important, you don't just bring it up once. It's a longer term effort to try and get it addressed. Yeah, and I think that's great points. I find it least likely to have transactional relationships. 
with uh, Japanese clients. Ah. Whereas with foreign one, it's you can some people are very transactional. Right. And I feel like Japanese, they don't want just a transactional relationship. They want to get to know you. And so this is where, for example, you'd have the tradition of aisatsu, which we would call in English like a courtesy call. So I'll give you an example. There's a client that I've been working with. It's kind of complicated. Their parent company sends people to the U.S. for these executive development programs that my team on the U.S. side does a portion of it. Like one of my team members, she's a coach and like gives them a week of intensive coaching where they mm-hmm. think back on all their work with subordinates in the past and like talk about what their vision is for themselves as a manager. And, you know, she does these great, you know, intensive sessions that are kind of life changing. The, the idea. So anyway, so we have this thing. And so I, I kind of coordinate things. And, you know, this work with this client started during the pandemic. And I had at one point during the pandemic gone and met the key people because you have to kind of go meet in person once. And what had happened is, is that the key person from HR had changed over and this new person had come in and me, this is bad. I hadn't like suggested, why don't I come over and meet you? Because I'm kind of not in the habit of like leaving my house anymore. <laughs> and so I kind of got this prompt, well, you know, why, why don't you like come over and say hello. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. I really should do that. And so I did like <laughs> the the okay homeowner. And it was like on Friday at noon and it was like pouring cats and dogs. But anyways, and I stopped before I went out and my neighborhood pastry shop and got a nicely wrapped box of like, you know, 3,000 yen <laughs> worth of fancy cookies. And so I like brought this with me and like, we basically, it was mainly like a small talk conversation. Like, oh, it's nice to finally see you in person. And then it turned out that that person actually is gonna do something else now. And there's a new guy who's gonna be handling the details. So I got to meet him. And you know, I gave them the candies and or cookies or whatever they were. And oh, and oh, and by the way, we're going to be like doubling the number of people we're sending next year. Is that okay with you? I'm like, oh yeah, that would be fine with us. <laughs> so, and again, I had sort of forgotten my own advice, but you you have to kind of show up in person once in a while with Japanese stuff comes out that doesn't come out otherwise. Where could the audience learn more about you? So there's um, my firm's website and, you know, there's introduction to myself and all my colleagues on there, a list of our clients so you can get a sense of what kind of firms we work with. And um, we have a huge article section. We have hundreds of articles on there about doing business um, between cultures. Um, we have Japan and other cultures, um, Japanese business, uh, several articles about Nemawashi. I think there's probably a Chosei one on there. So a lot of these different ideas, um, we have some things that you can read about. So I would definitely suggest looking there. If you're um, a Twitter person, I tweet a lot at Japan Intercult in English and JIC Rochelle in Japanese. So it will include both we'll say, links to the website and the Twitter handles. And I've personally read probably like five to 10 articles on your website, and I highly recommend it. Oh, thank you. And the other note is, uh, how do you help corporations? So we do a lot of cross-cultural training, both for people from other countries to understand Japan better and for people from Japan to understand other countries better. We do a lot of leadership training. 
We do a lot of DEI-related work. Um, I recently developed an unconscious bias seminar specifically for Japanese participants. And it's not just taking one from the U.S. and translating it because that doesn't really work so well. <laughs> so there's one that's relevant to the Japanese cultural environment. We do a lot of sexual harassment, power harassment, maternity and paternity harassment. New one is customer harassment. Training on that is recommended by the Japanese government. So we have training on those topics. And I have a version of all that harassment that is for non-Japanese managers who you know, have probably gotten a sexual harassment prevention training in their home countries. But power harassment is the type of harassment that it only exists under Japanese law. And it's actually rather broad and vague. And so you have to really be careful as a non-Japanese manager to know what is okay and not okay. There are a couple non-Japanese organizations that have had problems with this and have been sued by employees and lost recently. So I have a seminar on that. So we do a lot of training. I do a lot of leadership skills training for Japanese to give them a different model from that old-fashioned, old-school model, one that works maybe better in a global environment and with global team members, as well as younger Japanese don't want to put up with old-fashioned style either. Um, we do a lot of team buildings for mixed groups of Japanese and non-Japanese. And also, um, we do a lot of executive coaching. And one thing that's impressed me at Rochelle is, although she comes from the HR kind of like, you know, training people development background, mm -hmm. you really think about the business that it yes, creates. That is really key. And so, you know, for myself, I'm a business person and all my work experience has been in business and I have an MBA and every single member of our team, we require people to have actual hands-on business experience. Yeah, I think that makes you stand out compared to other companies that provide or may other people who are known for providing like training. This is not just a plug up, just okay. based on knowing and working with Rochelle. I think yeah. uh, this makes her stand out. It has to be practical and it has to be applicable because business people are busy and they need things that are useful. And so I think understanding that is really important. Just something theoretical is not really going to work for a lot of busy managers. Thank you so much. And I look forward to episode two. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Always great talking with you.